This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 815. The homes that we've been buying are primarily $100,000 and less. I started investing in 2020. Interest rates were about 3.5%, and buyers flooded the market. Nowadays, with 7 8% interest rates, I think a lot of people have told themselves that deals just won't work. Because of that, we've been able to make a lot more aggressive offers, less buyers in the market, more deals for us. What's going on, everyone? This is David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Podcast, coming to you from downtown LA at Spotify Studios, where I'm joined by Rob Abasolo and Soli Cayetano doing a real estate podcast. If you didn't know, we are the biggest, the best, and the baddest real estate podcast right. on the planet. And I am joined today by some talented real estate investors. Today, we interview Soli and we get into how she built a portfolio of properties all across the country using long distance investing techniques and got her start with cheaper price properties that made it easier to scale at scale. Rob, Bring us to today's quick tip. Today's quick tip. Find a way to keep yourself accountable. If you want to get into real estate, document the journey. You can do that so many different ways. But in today's story, we talk about how if you document it on Instagram and you put it out there for the world to see, then you sort of have to stick to it or else people are going to ask you questions and you're going to have to report back to them that you never actually did the thing that you said you were going to start to do. So go out there, start an Instagram account, document the journey and let other people follow along and it'll keep you on track. I like Rob being under a time crunch because he made a mistake on the quick tip, but he just kept rolling. <laughs> Keep going, baby. For the first time, the he got it in one take. Everyone, leave a comment on. on YouTube and let Rob know how proud of him you Thank are you. for not needing to be perfect. And since you did so great on that quick tip, Rob, I'm going to throw you another one. What's something of value that people can pay attention to that will help them in their career? You know, I think that's a very good story in starting small. You know, you don't have to go out there and buy these mega, crazy expensive houses. You can go out, buy a more affordable house, get your reps in, and scale your way up accordingly so that you don't necessarily you know, have to get into a big, scary purchase. You know, I think getting into a purchase takes confidence. It takes courage. And it doesn't mean that it has to cost a million dollars. It can be a $100,000 house. Thank you very much. We're going to get to the show shortly here. But before we do, make sure you listen all the way to the end because you do not want to miss That's the true. blood battle between Soli and I as we go head to head in a brutal fashion with Rob refereeing. That's really right. in a terrible way. You should have stopped the fight many times. You just <laughs> Let That's it get annihilated you. That's why. Yeah, there you go. So listen all the way to the end to hear how that goes. Let's get into it. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. We need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. 
Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Today's guest, Soli Cayetano, has been investing for three years. She has 40 units across Ohio, Georgia, and South Carolina. Her strategies include burying, flipping, and affordable housing. Yeah, fun fact. Uh, Soli, I hear you're going to write the foreword to David Green's book if he ever publishes an update to long-distance real estate investing. Is that true? Is there one coming out soon? At some point, I am going to update it. Yeah, it was the first book I ever wrote, so I'm sure it could have been written much better. <laughs> I think the story is that I kept on tagging David and way too many posts, and he got annoyed and finally said, <laughs> you can write the foreword. And I have a DM to prove it. Can confirm. Soli likes tag. Okay, she we're plays gonna, tag. She's good at tag. We're going to show tag. it in the show notes, the screenshot. Of, which is a legally binding, David, legally binding. Uh, agreement. I don't know if you know. Every man loves this, the thought of having his screenshot shared for everybody to see. <laughs> this is a very popular thing to get into. Well, before we get into your story, can you tell us in a, just a few quick points, what's working for you in your current market? Yeah, so I, I'm primarily investing in Augusta, Georgia, and it's a, a lot more affordable market. It's about two hours outside of Atlanta, I do have properties in Cincinnati and Aiken, South Carolina, which is right outside of Augusta. Um, The homes that we've been buying are primarily $100,000 and less, so very affordable market. The one thing about high interest rates, a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines right now. So I started investing in 2020. Interest rates were about 3.5%, and buyers flooded the market. It was super, super competitive. So try winning a non-cash offer, and it was like almost impossible. And so nowadays with 7, 8% interest rates, I think a lot of people have told themselves that deals just won't work. And so they're just not going to even try. So because of that, we've been able to make a lot more aggressive offers, less buyers in the market, more deals for us. And do you feel like the deals are working at the price points that you're currently purchasing at more than kind of more expensive premium mid-tier properties? I think so. I think that interest rates affect proportionally. They 
affect less the cheaper markets and the more expensive markets from just like a dollar amount on a mortgage payment on a $60,000 mortgage. It's, I don't know, maybe like a hundred bucks mm-hmm. if the interest rates go from 3% to 7%. But in the Bay Area where I live, if you have a million dollar house and the interest rate jumps from 3% to 7%, yeah, significant. that's probably like, I don't know, I thousands don't have of thousand, two thousand, yeah. three thousand yeah. dollars. And so just proportionally, the interest rates don't affect the smaller markets. So is that going to be more more of a cash flow uh, game going kind of the lower tier, right? Interest doesn't hurt as much versus the appreciation side of it. Or are you still getting the appreciation side of that in some of these markets as well? Yeah. So I think we can argue on this, David, of cash flow versus appreciation a little bit. But I, I think these markets are first and foremost cash flow, but you can find good pockets of appreciation in certain areas. Those are my favorite areas to invest in are the ones that have the like path of progress. There's a bunch of renovations going on. You can see that they're about to turn from like a class C to a class B. Those are the neighborhoods that I like to invest in because you can get both the cash flow from the affordable markets and the appreciation from investing in strategic locations. Yeah, that makes sense. So is your position that cheaper markets equal more cash flow? Depends on your strategy. But from a long-term rental perspective, I would say generally. What do you think, Rob? Um, I mean, I guess it's going to vary depending market to market. But I mean, for me, uh, I've always been in the mid-tier side mm-hmm. of things. You know, I haven't really done done kind of the $100,000 purchases all too much. I'm actually doing one right now as a wholesale in Houston, Texas. But that's meant to be more of a flip, not an appreciation play for me. So for the most part, my lane is mid-tier. Usually all the houses that I'm buying are going to be $300,000 to like a million dollars and a few a little bit more expensive than that. It just kind of depends. And are you buying short-term rentals or traditional rentals? Of the 40 units I own, I would say five of them are midterm rentals. Cool. I don't have any short-term rentals. I transitioned all the short-term rentals to midterm rentals just because the quality of the tenants for short-term rentals in a place like Cincinnati, I feel like are cool. maybe a little bit questionable. Yeah. And then I have 10 flips going on right now. Nice. Okay. You know, yeah. Actually... Going back to what you were saying, like I've got a buddy who does short-term rentals in very rural markets and yeah. he buys houses for $100,000. They do well. Yeah, they do so, super well. Yeah, so the Airbnb I bought was $125,000. It was a duplex. We put in about $60,000 of renovation, $20,000 of furniture. So all in for less than $200,000, just about $200,000. And I think our, on our best month, we made like $10,000 of rent. Wow. Like, incredible, right? That's crazy. And, and yeah. you turn that into a midterm rental? Yes. <laughs> it was very cyclical. I mean, I think that like during the summer months, it was great. It's not even, I mean, it doesn't really get that snowy, but it's not really a place people go in the winter that much. Sure. And so we'd have anywhere from like 3000 to $10,000 of bookings. But as a midterm rental, we can get a steady five to $6,000. Oh, yeah, so right. What's the mortgage on that? That's about maybe $1,700. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so okay. cash flows, yeah, totally. about $1,000 a unit as, as a midterm and it stays steady the whole year. I think that's totally fair. Midterm rentals really are the saving grace a lot of the times, yes. because especially if you are doing short-term rentals, you find out it's a lot of work and then you don't necessarily want to switch your strategy until you get a midterm rental guest. That's kind of, I stumbled upon it upon in, on accident. Um, I had a travel nurse come and book my place and I got paid pretty much the same amount of money Yeah, and it was way easier. Yeah. They never texted me. They never did anything. They're yeah. great guests. And I, we have a guy who is there for an entire year paying a midterm rental price, but his home had some, like, I said, burnt down or something. Yeah. And so insurance claim rented the whole place for an entire year and we're locked in at that high, that high rent. Man, n- nice. Yeah. Yeah. So my buddy, his strategy is buy $100,000 to $150,000 homes, more on the $100,000 side. Mm-hmm. His mortgage is always like 
I don't know, 800 bucks, whatever yeah. it ends up being, but he's booked 90% because no one, no one thinks that it would be a good investment to buy an Airbnb in these towns. Yeah. But he's like, all right, I'll just be the only Airbnb. He's booked like 90% and he basically grosses like 2,500 to like 3,300 bucks a month. So yeah, he's usually cash flowing like 1,500 bucks at a minimum. It's not bad. Yeah, I would say bad. most of my midterms cash around a thousand dollars. Mostly all of actually all of them are in Cincinnati. And then long term, when I bought at three and a half percent interest rates, those are like three to three to 700 bucks long term. And now in Augusta, it's a little bit lower. We're like 150, 250 bucks. With so that's what I was rates. getting at. When we're yeah. saying cash flow in cheaper priced homes, we're not only talking about traditional rentals. We're talking about short-term and medium-term rentals. I would agree with that, that you can cash flow much stronger on cheaper houses if you're doing medium-term and short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. Traditional rentals, you end up usually getting a couple hundred bucks, which gets eaten up by CapEx and maintenance. That's usually when I'm critiquing the idea that cheaper properties equal more cash flow, it's because the cash flow gets eaten up by the property again. But if we're talking about running them as a short-term rental, rental, I don't think that same logic applies. Yeah. I mean, unless you save up for maintenance and CapEx along the way too, or if you're renovating these properties so that they are lower maintenance and all your CapEx have been replaced, then you're 150. I mean, my 150 is after all reserves, Mm -hmm. all CapEx, all maintenance, all vacancy. So what actually goes into my pocket is probably more like 500 but I'm taking out all of those yeah. reserves and putting them into an operating And you're keeping 150, account, right? And I'm keeping 150 yeah. into more of like an owner pay account. So that ends up being like $1,800 a year. So over five years, you're talking about like $8,000 or something. It's not life-changing. That's, what, that's my point, But right? when you buy in the right markets and in the right neighborhoods in those markets, you do get that mix of cash flow and depreciation. Which is where the wealth comes from. Which is where Once the wealth again, from. we thought we were arguing, but we're really not. You're seeing <laughs> yeah. the same thing, that wealth comes yes. from the property going yes. up. Yeah. Yep, yep. So I understand that you had just graduated college when you started investing. What was your day job at that time? So I started working in commercial real estate when I was a sophomore in college. Pretty young. I just needed a paycheck, basically. And I was helping lease office space for pretty big companies. And so that was what I did sophomore year through senior year. And then when I was a senior, the pandemic hit. And that's what really propelled me into real estate. So I was a senior and... I was going into a fully commission-based job as a commercial real estate broker, leasing office space, and nobody wanted office space in 2020. It was like a dying industry. (laughs) And so as I sat in my... Why? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone was working from home. Um, (laughs) But I think as I was thinking about this, like I could make zero dollars for the next how many ever years I was going into a profession that was maybe going to be crushed. Mm -hmm. And so as it lasted longer and longer... My school was shut down. College was shut down. Work was kind of shut down. We didn't really know what to do. And I started thinking about how I could build some type of passive income, anything, so that if I got $0 of a paycheck for the next year, at least something was coming in. Um, What was really weird about the pandemic for me is I was always used to hustling and working two jobs. So in high school, I worked at a coffee shop and I went to high school. Then I went to college and got a brokerage job. So I was working basically full-time and going to school full-time. And so when the pandemic hit and school shut down and the world shut down, it just felt felt weird. Like I had all this time, all of a sudden I tried to cook, tried to, you know, everyone had their pandemic story about what they did. Um, and ultimately decided that I needed something more. So I looked into real estate investing. I started my Instagram. I posted that I was going to buy a property and that's how it took off. Wow. Okay. So you started your Instagram account, which, which is really great. A lot of great content for anyone that's looking to get into the world of real estate. And, uh, was it really more of a, hey, I want to document this journey? Like you're yeah. pretty excited to just put it out there? 
Absolutely. I think a lot of people wait to start their Instagram until there is a story to tell. But for me, it was just vlogging. Like I just wanted to, one, maybe hold myself accountable, put it out there into the world. I'm going to buy this real estate investment property and watch me make it happen. And then secondly, I was really trying to find a community for myself. And so again, I was stuck at college, but everyone had pretty much gone home. So I was literally alone by myself and isolated because you weren't supposed to hang out with anybody. Yeah. And so my internet friends became my real friends. And I talked to them. I completely changed my circle where before I was hanging out with commercial real estate brokers who don't really prioritize passive income. They're just always grinding. And college students who are partying and not thinking about, you know, retirement age. Instead, I was surrounding myself with all sorts of real estate investors who were prioritizing, you know, delayed gratification and taking big risks in order to buy these rental properties. And that shifted my whole mindset. My whole circle changed. So then you decide, okay, I'm going to buy a property in my backyard, get started small, work my way up from there. I lived in the Bay Area, California. And so homes there, I think the average home now is like $1.5 million or something. And so I was thinking I had about, I had about $50,000 saved up from working for three years, essentially. Wow, that's good. That's a lot. It's not bad. Yeah, no, yeah. Not bad at and, all. and I had like a full scholarship um, from my college, and so I didn't have any debt. Oh man, I'm and jealous. lucky that's me, cool. I was yeah. a lucky, very lucky person. Um, but I thought about like, okay, what could I buy in the Bay Area? Because that's usually what people think about is if I'm going to invest, buy in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I can maybe buy a condo, and then I would be tapped out from like a debt to income ratio standpoint. And I would have no more money. That would be it. And so as I started reading more of like the long distance real estate investing book and thinking about how I could make my money go further, I thought, okay, maybe I could do the Burr strategy. In order to do that, I would have to be in a more affordable market. Cool. So the big shift in your mindset living in the Bay Area was just, you know, hey, maybe it's not as obtainable to live here. You started, you read this book, you picked up some of the principles that my friend David Green has outlined and influenced so many people with. And how did, was that scary? Was that like, oh, I could do it? Was the book like, hey, man, this seems like a pretty clear strategy. Why not give it a shot? What was that even like doing, doing your first investment out of state? I think I didn't know what I didn't know. So it was, uh, I went into it a little blindly, but I did a couple things. So I was listening to Bigger Pockets Rookie a lot. It had just come out in about 2020-ish mm-hmm. and listening to just people like everyday people buy their first rental property. And I think from that, I was like, okay, if these everyday people can buy real estate, then why can't I do it? So that was more of like the confidence piece. And then I think the book was more of the tactical piece. So how do you go out and find the market? How do you go out and build the team? How do you actually go analyze these deals? And so together, I think it was the confidence mixed with the tactical that came together and was like, I'm just going to go do this. And a little bit of recklessness, just, you know, why not? Worst thing that could happen is I lose $50,000 and I'm (laughs) just where I started, like just where everybody else is starting and probably graduating school with $0. So I thought worst case scenario, it's really not that bad. Yeah. I mean, you know, 50,000 is a lot to lose, but I, I think that's the right attitude. You know, a lot of people get into real estate and they analyze all the things that could go right, but then they overanalyze all the things that could go wrong. And so that always stops them from doing it. Whereas I've always been the kind of person, and Brandon always used to say it so well, which is like, I jump out of the airplane and I assemble the parachute yes. on the way down. And uh, for me, that's always how I got how I got to the next property because I was like, I have no idea. But yeah. other people that presumably aren't geniuses or all, they can't all be smarter than me. Yeah. Like maybe a couple of them, but they all seem like normal, regular people that are just good and consistent. 
And, you know, you really do have to be a little reckless, I think. There, a it's, a, it's a slippery slope. That's you know? what I like to share on my Instagram, too, because I, I feel like a lot of people think about real estate investors and they think like older, maybe male or something. But seeing people who look like them and who are younger like them really adds a lot of inspiration for people that if I can do it, then they can do it. I'm a totally normal person. No one's special. But if I can do it, they can do it. David, what, what, what do you say that you're... On the on the spectrum of like reckless, you know, following your gut, I guess would probably be a better way to say that versus the an- analytics and data analyzation. Do you find yourself more on one side, right in the middle? I'm not as reckless as I think I appear when I'm giving advice. I'm more strategic. Yeah. I want to line up all the dominoes. I want to have a good idea what I'm doing. I want to know where the pitfalls are and how to avoid them. I know that it could go wrong. And oftentimes it does go wrong. We've talked about that. But it. I don't know that things going wrong ever catch me by surprise. Like, yeah. Yep, that could have yeah. happened. I knew, right? That's a good way to frame it. I don't like sure. to jump out of the plane and build your parachute on the way down because sometimes you don't know where you're landing. Even if you build the right parachute, you're like, well, this is a market that sucks. Why did I succeed <laughs> here? And you kind of yeah. have to start over. Uh, but I do think that there could be benefit in parachute building, right? So you invested in market, now you're investing in different markets, yeah. but you learned a lot about the fundamentals of real estate investing in that additional market. So there's still value, even if the properties themselves aren't crushing it. You take that information, you go to another market where they will. Now you can 10x how much money you made in the next five years that you made in maybe the first two or three. So there is value in taking action, a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like, and you know, half the audience is listening to you and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you said that. I'm also glad you said that. I think reckless is definitely the wrong term, but I think parachute building to an extent, but taking action, it's like, you're never really ready to take action. Much like you're never really ready to have a kid. You know, but then you have a kid and you figure it out. You're never ready to go to the gym. You know, I was like, I could be in much better shape before I have to go. Yeah. So I think there's something to putting your feet to the fire, though, because unless you're forced to figure something out, then you're not going to figure it out. So I didn't. I mean, I had a really good connection in Cincinnati, which helped me choose that market. Incredible market. Glad I chose it. But I didn't have like I didn't have any contractors, any property managers when I went under contract for my first property. But because I went under contract, I was like, oh, shoot, got to figure that out. And I figured it out. So it really forced me to take the necessary action. So did you have, I mean, because obviously this is a big investment for you, getting started into it, doing all that kind of thing. Did you have family to fall back on, like family to help you, people in your sphere (laughs) that were willing to like co-invest or anything? Um, At first, no. I think I was really um, adamant on doing it by myself, more maybe from like a pride perspective. I don't have any family members really who invest in real estate, don't understand it. My dad's an immigrant from the Philippines, like mom's from the Midwest. She was a violinist, like doesn't know anything about real estate either. And so that was kind of the background that it came from. It came from like very little money. And so all I knew is that I didn't want to feel the insecurity of not having money. So I needed to go build myself a financially stable future. So that was sort of the family background from, I guess, a like a mentorship background. Yeah. I had a couple of friends who invested in real estate. And the person who introduced me to the Cincinnati market was a broker, a real estate broker, and he owned like eight or nine rental properties. And so that's how I actually ended up picking Cincinnati. He was kind enough during the pandemic to jump on a Zoom call with me, show me the market, show me what areas to look at, where to avoid. He introduced me to an agent and that was my into that market. So your broker sets you up with part of the dream team here, but how did, how did you find the broker? 
So we were actually working with him for a deal in commercial real estate. So about six months before I bought my first property, it was like November 2019, I flew out to Cincinnati for a big build-to-suit development that we were helping lease up. And we toured the market. So this is how I fell in love with Cincinnati. I went out there. We were wined and dined by all the developers. I think coming from California, California is, I feel like, maybe a little bit not super friendly to business owners and not really into like people running their businesses here (laughs) a little bit. But in Cincinnati, I was shocked. They were so encouraging of business. They wanted, they invested, I think it was like a billion dollars over the last 10 years. People, there was Kroger headquartered there. There was General Electric headquartered there. They were giving huge tax credits to incentivize business coming into the area. And it was it was such a lively city. So we heard all about the history of Cincinnati, how it used to be one of the most dangerous cities out there. And then they were having trouble having like recruiting talent students to stay in Cincinnati because they're like, I don't want to be here in this city. So they invested like a billion dollars to create a thriving uh, yeah. And I was like, wow, what a story. Like, and what a place. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of young people out there. The food is incredible. It's very lively. And so from that, I think, and I looked on Zillow and I was like, one hundred thousand dollar houses? What? <laughs> that exists out here? <laughs> and you just don't know because coming from the Bay Area, all I did was look at Zillow in the Bay Area and all I saw was a million dollar houses. So All of that combined, it was the friendliness to business. It was the investment into the neighborhoods. It was walking around, seeing it was lively, and then seeing that the homes were about $100,000 and the rents were pretty high. All of that together kind of convinced me to invest there. It's really cool. So you're you're ready to go. You're like, I've got the broker. I've got the connections. I got the dream team. You mentioned that you you came from more humble beginnings on the family side. When you went to your family... And you were like, I'm going to do real estate where they're like, great. Or was was there a little bit of, I don't know, dissonance or tension even pitching that to the family? Yeah, my mom actually followed me on Instagram. And I think she thought it was fun to like, because okay. I, I feel like, yeah. you know, she's always wanted to be the mom where I call her every week type of thing. And and so I think she felt it was a good way to keep up with what I was doing in life was just to watch me on my stories every day. And so she knew everything every step of the way. She's always been, always been really supportive. And so when I got under contract on my first property and closed on it, I closed on it without seeing it. And then I was like, I should probably fly out there and see what I bought. And she actually came with me for a few weeks. Oh, and that's nice. Saw yeah. So I think she's like, she's really proud. She doesn't know much about real estate, but she was really supportive of the journey. My dad, I think, doesn't understand real estate investing that much, but um, he's somewhat supportive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Well, you're, you're getting into this like investing into real estate, going long distance. Were there any strategies that you use to help keep yourself accountable? Because we we're talking a little bit before the podcast, like there's accountability, there's taking action, but then actually holding yourself accountable to the action that you're taking and getting into your first property is a huge step. So how did you keep yourself accountable and like actually create systems around that and all that stuff? Yeah. So to go back and set the scene a little bit, it was again, 2020, everybody was super isolated. No one was hanging out with each other. And so that's where my Instagram, I guess, family came into play. And so I kind of put it out there. Here are my goals. I'm going to, I think my very early goals were, I'm going to buy 45 units by 30 years old. And I'm almost there. I'm 25. But um, I put it out there. I think I wrote that when I didn't even own one rental property. So to me, it was putting out my goals, putting out my intentions into the Instagram universe. And that actually held me accountable for taking action. Even though I maybe only had like 500 followers at the time, it was 500 people that I felt like I had committed to something 
And I wanted to actually tell them that I'd follow through. You know, I, th- I think on the podcast, we have the opportunity to share our life and our investments and stuff. And like, oftentimes I talk about things that I'm doing and I don't really like doing it because it puts it out in the universe. And usually like when I talk about a house that I'm an escrow on, I'm like, oh, dang it. It's going to fall close on it. Yeah. yeah. And it <laughs> falls out escrow all the time. And that's yeah. I'm like, dang it. I wish I hadn't said that on the Bigger Pockets podcast or on, on the Rob Hill channel. But I do find that saying it out there kind of formalizes it. It makes it official that you're actually doing it. And, uh, you know, people ask you about it. People are yeah. interested in your yeah. life and they want to know, hey, Soli, you said you wanted to do 45 units. Like, how's it going? Yeah. There's a statistic from a study that was done and it was saying that if you think you want to do something, your chances of actually doing it are maybe like 1%. Mm -hmm. And if you commit to somebody that you're going to do it, it jumps up to like 60, 65%. And then if you have an actual accountability appointment set, then it jumps up to 95% likely to achieve that goal. And so for me, I was at least at that commitment level on Instagram. But for me, I felt like it was also my own accountability appointment set for myself that I was going to post every day and show up and show people I was taking action. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I like, you know, I always say David and I are going to do a Zumba class together (laughs) because I want to put it out there to keep us accountable. You know what I mean? I thought we were doing Orange Theory. That's fine, too. Got to stay in the orange. Um, what, what did you feel like? So that's the whole thing with the heart rate. You know, you have like a green, orange, red, and you want to stay in the orange. I didn't get that one at first, but... I only know because Ash goes to Got to stay in the green. Five times a week. Um, <laughs> that's right. Well, David, that's right. Got to stay in the green. His new That's actually the name of his memoir. Green Theory. Uh, green Theory. Green starting Ooh, a fitness boot camp. I like that. So now that you're on Instagram, you seem to kind of have the meteoric rise blow up very quickly. Did you feel the support relatively quickly or kind of was there a ramp up time to actually build your audience and kind of take them through this journey? Yeah, I mean, I think it took took a little bit of time, uh, but I do think that everybody loves to hear a good story from like rags to riches kind of story type of thing. And so people were following me. I moved to Cincinnati for for maybe four weeks for my first property. I slept on the floor of a construction zone. I got food poisoning. I got my like window broken into and through all of that. And and, like, I didn't know how to do anything. So I learned how to use a drill, tried to take cabinets off. People were texting me like, you didn't prime the cabinets. And so (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I didn't know you had to prime the cabinets, but thank you. Um, There was just a lot. Like I didn't know anything starting out. And so my Instagram, community, they were further ahead than me and trying to teach me how to be a real estate investor. And they were very supportive of, I would have like daily freak out moments on my stories and we became real friends. And so I think through all of that, um, I really felt like a, like a true community. Like I had friends that were in real estate and that was, those are my people. So then when I, when I grew my Instagram, I really wanted to give back because they had taught me so much that now is my turn. Now that I had grown my portfolio so quickly, how can I turn around and teach other people how to do the same thing? That's cool. You know, you're getting get the help, a little reciprocity there between you and your audience because I'm sure, you know, you followed people that, that kind of helped you through everything as well. So your portfolio today. Do you own it yourself or do you own this with partners? So I only own four doors by myself. And then afterward, I had to take on partners to grow my portfolio. So I own the other, I guess, what is that, 36 with some of them with one partner and some mm-hmm. of them with two partners. I really liked using partners to grow because I 
was really stubborn in the beginning doing everything by myself. But as I found partners, they really complemented my skills. So one thing I was really bad at, we were talking about contractors and how difficult it is to work with them. I was not fantastic at managing renovations. And so one of my partners actually manages all the renovations right now. And then on the deal hunting side, I mean, I was fine at it, but I wasn't the best at it. And so I now have another partner who does all of the acquisitions work. And that frees me up to do a lot of the capital raising work for our projects, which kind of coincides with social media and how I raise money on social media. So we're all able to focus on the things that we're best at. So how do you guys split up your the ownership? We just divide it evenly. Like, evenly. Yeah. So you have a partner that finds the deals and analyzes them, a partner that executes on operations with the yep. rehabs, mm-hmm. and then you raise the money that goes into the properties. Yeah. And then how, how do you manage them? Uh, the partner who manages the renovations also owns a property management company. Okay. And so it's- You pay his property management company yep. to manage the properties. Yeah. Yeah. So you're sort of like the capital raiser in this group, which is why you focus more on creating the content that you're talking yep. about, building a community, because that's where the money gets raised to put into the properties. Right. Yeah. It's all kind of symbiotic. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, Instagram is a really great place not only to document it, but effectively you're showing that you're a hard worker, you know, that you actually are doing this real estate thing. You're sweating, you're struggling, you're succeeding. So it always feels like it's a really good place to build trust with potential investors and people that are partnering out. So did you ever have people just reaching out organically or are you now more on the side of really pushing partnerships and finding investments that way? I would say most of them have come very organically. Social Mm -hmm. media is a really great way to nurture relationships kind of passively. So I have a lot of investors who have followed me since the very beginning. Like they've watched me become what I am today. And through that, they're like, wow, I've been with you for three years. They know everything about me. They know my like cat's name, my brother's name. They've just been there through it all. And so I think it's a, the credibility is, is really high. And so people will always reach out and say, hey, I would love to partner with you on a deal. And I think I don't really want very many active partners anymore. It's just like, it's just going to be tough. Yeah. yeah. You have to be very picky with your active partners. So I can change the conversation to be, hey, I'm not looking for active partners right now, but I am looking for passive partners if you want to be a passive investor inside my deals or passive private money lender. And that's how I get a lot of my, um, mostly through DMs. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So walk us through the the funnel, if you will. Someone sends you a DM, you respond, you chat a little bit, obviously qualify them, I'm sure, on the DM side of things. What's the next step after that? So I have them fill out a Google form. And if you go to my bio, you will find that Google form. And I've had a lot of people just like copy paste it because it works. Mm -hmm. And so they all, it kind of acts like a, maybe a CRM, but a super simple one, try to keep it simple. And they, it'll ask them certain things like, how much are you wanting to invest? Are you looking for debt or equity? What is your experience with private money lending? What's your experience with real estate? And then from there, I have a whole like list of people that I can actively reach out to one by one if I want to, or I have an email blasting where if I have a deal that pops up, I can say, Hey, I'm looking for a private lender. These are all the details and blast it out to, I think I have like 850 people on there. Nice. Nice. Okay. And obviously warm leads that have reached out. Yeah. What does it take for you to hop on the phone and really chat with them? Is it like a dollar amount? Are you like, okay, if they're under 50,000, they go into this bucket, but if they have you know, two to 500,000 that I make the phone call. Do you have a system for that? So we try to have one lender for every deal. So it depends. Usually they're above a hundred thousand dollars. And so it depends on, on how many deals we have in the pipeline, whether we jump on how many calls we jump on, but we'll usually ask for proof of funds to actually prove that they have the money and it's liquid. And then we'll jump on a phone call with them. If it's usually over a hundred thousand dollars. 
Do you get a lot of fall off from people when you ask them for their proof of funds? No, really. Really? Okay. I don't find that people really lie about it. That uh, There's a lot of people who want to invest under $50,000, and I think those are better suited for maybe syndications. And I've done one syndication, so those are helpful to have those leads in the CRM just in case I ever do one again. Um, but I would say people are generally pretty honest about how much money they have. Well, I don't even mean the honesty side of it. I just mean, are they willing Nervous to? Yeah, are they will, yeah, because a lot of people get very finicky or defensive about like showing a screenshot of bank, bank statements, stuff yeah. like that. No, I think it just really comes down to the level of trust and them being with me for. I have had I've raised money from friends of followers, and that's a lot harder because there isn't that inherent trust built in. Sure, they yeah. haven't been watching yourself, me. It's right? actually pitching, right? Yeah. Where as if they are a follower and they know me and they've seen me and they've heard me talk, they've seen my face, they know who I am, they know I show up. Then I think it's a it's a lot less of a pitch and more just a conversation. <laughs> yeah, I've been in those calls before where it's like a, an acquaintance and they're like, "Hey, meet this person. He's got yeah two hundred thousand. I'm like, "Okay, sure." And then they're like, "All right, give me your greatest strength and your greatest." Weight. I'm like, "Yeah, uh, I just did one. A, this isn't an interview, pal. I'm sorry." <laughs> I just did one like that, and I was like, "Wow, I forgot how hard this is yeah. when they ask like." for everything, like your social security number, your bank statements, your assets, everything. And it's like when you have that closer relationship and you don't have to be an influencer to, to do this. Mm -hmm. There are people who I know who have maybe even like a thousand followers, but they're tight knit. There are always people looking to invest their money who might just not have the time to invest their money. Yeah. I mean, I think the warmest leads that you have in your system are always going to be friends and family that see yeah. you post on Facebook, Instagram. And that's really how I got my first set of partners was just, I was always talking about my properties Yeah, and they reached out and they're like, Hey, I like your properties. Like, how do I do this? And I was like, well, let's partner up. My first private lender was my mom and she reached out from watching me on Instagram. And I would never have thought to ask her for money or to invest in a property ever. But she texted me and was like, hey, I've been watching you on Instagram. Like, how do I get invested in your next deal? And that's, I used up all my money on my first property. Did you take your birthday money and just say, <laughs> roll it into this and I'll, I'll make a return on my own it's birthday a money? A little bit more than my birthday money. <laughs> um, but she still invested in that deal. And I think that's kind of when everything clicked for me because I was stuck. Like, how am I going to buy my next property without any money? And then after my mom's like, I'll invest with you. I think it clicked. I was like, oh, I can use other people's money. Mm -hmm. And it's a win-win. So she takes her interest payment every year and like takes a vacation off of it. And I love that. I'm like, I get to have like fund my mom's vacation and she gets to fund my real yeah, estate. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's a win-win. So, Huge win-win. And then how it started is I started talking about private money on Instagram. People were like, how did you buy your next property? Like so fast. It was maybe three months later. And I said, oh, private money. And then it became a whole education process of what private money is. And because a lot of people don't even know that it's an option, that education process is what brings people to actually ask you to invest with you. That's awesome. Well, that's an amazing story. And I really appreciate you sharing it. Now, uh, I'm really excited about this next piece of the podcast, because it's a segment that we're calling the Battle of the Burrs. And uh, you, Soli, are going to go head to head with my friend DG here. Soli, your team low price points in smaller markets, scale units. DG, your higher price points in bigger markets, appreciation, okay? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you first, what are the advantages of each? Okay. So I think that there are a couple advantages. One is the amount of reps that you're able to take with smaller deals. So you can buy $1 million house or you can buy $100,000 houses with the same amount of money. And with every single deal, you're going to learn something new. 
And so when you are doing 10 reps opposed to one rep, you're learning 10 times the amount of lessons. So as a beginner investor, especially for me, I was able to do a lot of deals. I think I bought like 25 units in one year. And I learned an incredible amount from that amount of deal flow and all the lessons that came with it. If I only bought $1 million property, and whether it went well or not well, I wouldn't have learned as much as I did. Very good. Very good. Solid answer. DG, what are the benefits? What are the advantages of each? I think Soli's got a good point that when you're doing cheaper real estate, you get in more reps, which there is value in when you're learning in doing stuff. But once you've learned how to do it, you cease having value in just killing yourself doing $100,000 properties. Uh, The advantages of buying more expensive real estate is that, A, it tends to be in markets with less supply but more demand. So we're in Southern California right now. Everybody wants to live here, which is evidenced by the hour-long Uber drive that we had to take to get like three miles to the studio. Yep, yep, yep. Weather is amazing. Very difficult for them to build more real estate out here. Like we're staying at a really nice short-term rental up in the hills. There's nowhere else to build a house. It's all filled up, right? So as wages increase and as people move into the area, but there isn't anywhere to build, your supply and demand get off balance is what you really want as a real estate investor. You find that the prices are going to go up more in areas like that proportionally than in the cheaper areas, which tend to have a lot of land, a lot of areas to build, and there's not a ton of demand. People aren't falling over themselves to move into Cincinnati, Ohio, like they would be to move into the best parts of it's Los Angeles. It's the San Diego of the Midwest. Have you heard that? Oh, that's funny, though. I wonder who came up with the that. The Paris of the Plains. Yeah. Very, but San Diego is a great example of a market that yeah. everyone wants to live in, right? And maybe Cincinnati is the wrong example, but lower price markets in general yeah. are that way because you can't push prices higher because they'll just build more homes. There's there's plenty of supply. When the prices go up, say, 20% on a million-dollar house, that's $200,000. On a $100,000 house, that's $20,000. So, but when they go down 20%, that's... When's the last time you saw San Diego real estate go down? San Francisco real estate has gone down. That's a horrible... Yeah, that, that, that place was completely mismanaged. San Francisco real estate has gone down. But I wouldn't consider San Francisco to be like... She got you, real estate. She did name one. You said name one. She named it. I okay, named how it. much is it? Winner of round one, solely. <laughs> Two, what are the pitfalls of each in the short run and in the long run? Soli, you first. I mean, should I defend mine or should I try to get his... You'd be better off to just keep attacking me and keep the attention <laughs> off of right. your This argument. is the clip right here. This is the viral clip on Instagram. Okay, Downfalls. I think the biggest downfall is is the is the risk. I have a lot of acquaintances, friends who invest in or like who flip homes in the Bay Area, and if they are, I mean, you can lose a hundred thousand dollars on a million dollar house, and it's just ten percent, right? But it's when you're investing in the in the Midwest, and it's a hundred thousand dollars, you have to price cut ten percent to sell your house. It's ten thousand dollars, and so I'm a very risk averse person, and I try to take you know, minimal risk for maximal returns. And for me, that means investing in lower cost markets because I can spread my risk amongst multiple different properties. And on any one of them, maybe I lose $10,000, but I'm never going to lose $100,000 because those properties are only worth $100,000. I like it. David, what are the pitfalls of higher price points in bigger markets in the short run and in the long run? Well, they're harder to get into because more people want them. So like we interviewed uh, Jason yesterday and he was talking about how San Diego real estate where he is, it's incredibly hard to get the thing in contract at all. 
So your, your returns in the short term are often lower and it's more difficult to get in because it's more of a delayed gratification where you win in the long run. And then it can also be tougher to find like uh, contractors that are going to work in those areas because they're also in demand. So pretty much every single element that makes real estate investing tough becomes tougher in the higher price markets. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair, fair, fair. Soli, which of these strategies is better for new investors? Absolutely. I think the cheaper markets. I mean, even David agreed that when you're a complete beginner and you're trying to get reps in, you're going to get more reps in in a cheaper market. I also really believe that the risk is, you know, minimized because you're not going to lose as much money as if you're potentially investing in a Bay Area market or a San Diego market. And those price swings are like $100,000, $150,000. So if you want to get reps in to learn more about real estate and minimize your risk, I think you're better off in cheaper markets. Good answer. David, same question to you. Thank you, Rob. Why did you adopt this accent when you're interviewing? I'm a host now. <laughs> I'm like a ding, ding, fight. You became British. Fight. I'd say the better strategy for an investor isn't necessarily the price point. I don't know that I would recommend that. It's probably more the execution. So like house hacking yeah. can work in expensive markets just like it can in cheaper markets. I'd probably lean away from flipping as a newer investor in general. So I think strategies like rent by the room, house hacking, trying to, buy, to add value to the real estate you buy, that's a better strategy for a newbie. I probably wouldn't tell a newbie it matters if it's expensive or it's cheap. I just think that's irrelevant. I would agree with that partially. I mean, I see, I feel like house hacking, if you really want to dip your toes into real estate and you're in an expensive market, great way to do it um, because it's minimal risk and you're living in the house. And so I honestly, though, also turnkey rentals out of state are a really easy way to start as well. And you can do it in cheap markets. You can do it in mid-tier markets. I would say those are your best bet. No? You don't like turnkey <laughs> rentals? No, not at all. I hate them. Why? You can't buy equity with a turnkey. You can't add value or force equity with a turnkey. You usually don't get market appreciation equity. You can't force cash flow. All the ways that I look to add value to real estate usually aren't happening. And you're buying a property from someone else. You're basically buying convenience. And Do you in think, life, though, that beginners should always buy value-add properties to start? I think everyone should buy value-add properties. Yeah. You I don't think, think you should take on a whole new a development. But no, I'd rather see a I'd rather see a beginner buy an ugly house with terrible carpet that smells bad for below market value and go do a cosmetic upgrade than buy a house that a flipper already did that on and the flipper makes the fifty thousand dollars and they get in for maybe higher than market value. And then they have to wait a really long time for it appreciates. If they do it all, they can't get out of it. I, I guess from my perspective, I've heard so many horror stories of people that got in on turnkey and couldn't get out that it's put a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth for that. I've had a lot of friends start with turnkey just because they're nervous and to buy turnkey properties just to feel like I'm comfortable with the real estate buying mm -hmm. process. I feel like I have an in in the market. I just get comfy yeah, with it. They're buying convenience. They are. But real estate investors shouldn't be buying convenience. We should be buying value. They're buying also maybe a little bit more confidence too. So once they buy one or two, then they switch to value add and they feel like they're a little bit more ready. So would you tell someone to go to 7-Eleven and pay $3 for a soda or go to Costco and buy $3 for a 12-pack? Depends on I mean, how many that, you want. Yeah. Depends on how convenient you yeah. want it to be. But yeah. you're going to make money by avoiding convenience. That's true. I mean, I bought a burr for my first property. That's not turnkey. It's not. Which is why you're doing good now. But I was ready to go all in. And I think some people aren't ready. Yeah, that's fair. I wish we would have started with this. This is great. We can put this up. Question the four. Gally, finish him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, final question. What is the largest number of projects you've had at one time? Um, renovation projects? Yeah. 19. 
Dang. Dude, how many do I have right now? <laughs> 18. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ding, ding. Yes. God damn it. <laughs> Where are they? Are they out of state, in state? Three in California, three in South Florida, one in Georgia. Okay. But if you added up the number of the real estate, I would bet like one of them probably costs more than the 19 that you had bought. So Maybe true. that's part of why I like it because it's one nineteenth of the work yeah. to get the same results. Yeah, I can see that. Mm, yeah. I don't know if that's no? real. You don't think so? You think, hold on, you think buying like one really big cabin is one nineteenth of the work is buying like how buy, the rehab? buying one property for one point nine million and rehabbing it is the same is less oh, work rehabbing. than nineteen properties. Yeah, because that's what we said here is the largest number of projects you've had at a time. Projects like okay. you're fixing it up. You're doing okay. nineteen homes at one time, they're all worth a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. This is where I I think I personally maybe went wrong or uh-huh. maybe just too aggressive is I bought, I think I bought like 25 units in one year, all value add. Ooh, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. So what if you bought one value add unit that was the same price as those 25? It'd probably be less work. I'd probably be less stressed. Well, now, now I don't know who, who to give it to. So we'll just say that you tied. <laughs> I say tie goes to the guest. <laughs> tie goes to the guest. I say the win goes to the, the guest. The fatality is owned. <laughs> well, before we end here, Sully, can you give us a, a quick snapshot of your total units, portfolio net worth, cash flow? Sure. Um, so 40 units, probably around maybe $5 million. I'm I'm a GP in a syndication. That's another $5 million, but I don't cool. like to count that sure, in my sure, unit sure. count. Yeah. Um, of that, 20 are rented. Um, my proportionate cash flow is around $10,000. Um, 10 are vacant because they're being renovated and 10 are being flipped. We have four or five under contract right now. And is that the portfolio value? Or is that your percentage of the portfolio? That's the portfolio value. Gotcha. So then my, you have your partners that you're splitting that with that we talked yeah, about. Yeah, some of them are mine. Some of them are 50-50. Some of them are 33%. Right. So my proportionate portfolio value is maybe like two, maybe, plus the syndication percentage. Very nice. That's amazing. That's amazing in three years? Three years, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, started with $50,000 and used other people's money to build up all the rest of it. $5 million portfolio and a $5 million syndication, syndication which yeah. is crazy. You know, people were their whole lives putting all their money into their 401k to retire with $2 million bucks. Yeah. Million bucks. I always think about it like if I stopped investing today and they all got paid off, then you'd have... I mean, probably about two, three million dollars of equity and well, probably more because appreciation will pump those numbers up. And I think I calculated like $40,000 of rent too. It's a good, pretty good retirement. That's amazing. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for coming and sharing everything. Thanks for giving numbers, for giving tactical steps on how to raise money. If people want to learn more about you, find you on the, on Instagram or on threads, uh, <laughs> YouTube, all of the above, where can they, where can they reach out? Yeah. It's lattes.and.lisas pretty much on any platform. And then lattesandlisas.com. Awesome. David, what about you? David Green 24 on all social media and davidgreen24.com for my website. That'd be my nice. advice to David. I, I think we missed that question, but you gotta change that. Change the name. David Green 24. Mm-hmm. What's the 24 for? That was my number in high school. Hmm. And it's easy. What would you change it to? David Green Invest. That would be a big difference from 24 to Invest. I, I feel like, so, yeah, I feel like honestly, people who have numbers after their name only have numbers because David Green was taken. Yeah, there's 23 other David Greens. Yeah. <laughs> there's 23 other David Greens. Pretty much. Pretty much. And so, I, I think you should be thy David Green. Thy? Mm-hmm. The David or the David Green would work too. Yeah. You think that like, cheesiness would work for thy what people David expect Green. from me? <laughs> the ultimate bow investor. 
just take a picture in like like a knight armor and just put that yes. as my uh, profile picture. Yeah, protecting investors from bad advice. <sighs> You're the knight in shining armor of real estate, my friend. We got two minutes in, and we're gonna end, baby. Sign us out. This is David Green for Rob Cheeseball Abisolo signing off. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.